When you think about these two chapters, Ezra 9, Daniel 9, it's full of rich instruction about who God is when we look at this, who we are, and how God has graciously worked on our behalf of his people. It teaches us that, well, it teaches us a couple of things, that because we are so prone to sin, you and me are so prone to sin, and because God is so rich in his mercy, ongoing repentance should mark our lives. Ongoing repentance should mark our lives. If you're not repenting daily, let me just say this. You're sinning daily. Is your response to God's Word one of arrogance and pride, or one of humility and repentance? You can learn a lot from the Israelites' reaction to the reading of the law from Pastor Mark's teaching today. They immediately humbled themselves with fasting, putting on sackcloth and dirt, and confessed their sins. They saw their frailty and sinfulness in light of an awesome God. Just as the Israelites, you're prone to sin, but thank God He's rich in mercy. Ongoing repentance should mark your life as a believer. This motivates the daily perspective of your utter dependence on God in the light of His glory, but also His grace. Well, let's join Pastor Mark in the book of Nehemiah chapter 9 for today's edition of Come Alive. We're in Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to pick back up in our verse-by-verse study of Nehemiah. Chapter 9 is where we will be. When you think about Nehemiah chapter 9, really as you read it, it flows real well. And, And like we've told you guys before, the chapters were never there in the original manuscripts. There, somebody had to add those, and I don't know why, but it probably just gives us a place to break and remember where we're at. But chapter 9 and chapter 8 would flow very well together if they were just in the same you know, chapter. Where in chapter 8, if you remember from a few weeks back, the people had heard God's word, they uh, read, they wept, and they repented as they realized how seriously they and their forefathers had sinned. Uh, But it was a time for a great feast, and so Nehemiah and the other leaders exhorted the people not to weep, to rejoice, adding, for the joy of the Lord, in verse 10 of chapter 8, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And you might say, man, I, I have very little strength. I'm weak. The weak has beat me down. This whatever I'm going through is wearing me out. But the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so when we look at that and we read something like that, we have to either, we, we have to choose. Are we going to believe it? It's either the truth or it's, the, it's a lie. Uh, I choose to believe that it's the truth. Now, joy doesn't mean happiness. Happiness is based off of a circumstance or a situation. But when we look at this, the, the Ezra the priest had said, For the joy of the Lord is your strength knowing that God is going to get us through whatever it is. So if we look now, it's two days after the end of the Feast of Booths. Remember we talked about that where the people went out and they built these tents to represent the tabernacle in the wilderness. And that's what they would do. The people gather again this time with fasting and sackcloth as we read here in verse 1. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth 
and with dust on their heads. Now you might think, well, that's a weird way to end a celebration. But what happens is, is they do this with fasting and sackcloth and dirt. They place it on themselves to express grief over their sins. Again, the law of the Lord is read for several hours, and the Levites, perhaps even led by Ezra, pray in repentance, asking God to take note of their subservience to a, you know, foreign kings, their subservience to foreign kings, and and the next few verses we'll see. See, along with Ezra chapter 9, and sometimes when you read your Bible, you should actually pair chapters from other books, kind of chronologically, so you can get a whole picture. But along with Ezra chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 9, it's one of the great prayers of confessions. In the Bible, it's full of rich instruction. I mean, we, we're going to get into it next week a little more and a little more deeply. But you see, it's, it's the longest prayer in the Bible. If you read through it, it takes about six minutes. So I've talked about how we've seen short prayers and God answers those. Here are these long prayers and they're good. And I'm not picking on people for short or long prayers. It doesn't matter as long as you mean it. God knows. It's not whether or not I like your prayer or anyone else likes your prayer. It's whether or not it's from the heart. It's to God and God hears it. You may not know what to pray sometimes. And the Bible tells us that. You may not know what to pray. You might just make a sound, a groan, a mumble. And the Lord can interpret that through the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, you know, the Holy Spirit takes it up and says, hey, this guy, I know his heart. God knows your heart. He knows what you're going through. So, you know, we pray. That's what we're called to do. Uh, sometimes people are ashamed to do it, and I'm not, because I, I really have a good time when people start to ask questions. When people even get on to me. One time we were praying as a family a long time ago, and this lady, I heard this lady lean over to her husband and goes, look at that. Look how primitive they are. They're praying. And I heard her, and so I was like, well, you know what? She's eavesdropping on my prayer. I'm going to just answer her question. We finished praying, and she kind of looked at me, and she was like, you know, I was like, did my praying bother you? She goes, no, it's just very primitive. She's like, it's just, she goes, I don't think it's even socially accepted. And I said, okay. I said, you know, there's a couple in my family that don't pray. And she goes, really? I said, yeah, I got two dogs. They don't pray before they eat. And she just stopped and looked at me. I mean, she got that I was comparing her to a dog. And so in a nice way, in a loving way. When you think about these two chapters, Ezra 9, Daniel 9, it's full of rich instruction about who God is when we look at this, who we are, and how God has graciously worked on our behalf of his people. It teaches us that, well, it teaches us a couple of things, that because we are so prone to sin, you and me are so prone to sin, and because God is so rich in his mercy, ongoing repentance should mark our lives. Ongoing repentance should mark our lives. If you're not repenting daily, let me just say this. You're sinning daily. I one time stood in front of a church and I said, how many of you sinned this week? And nobody raised their hand. You want to know why? And I, and I know why, but the reason why is because we come to church and we jump out of our cars with these smiles and we're like, hey, how are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Really? Really, are you doing great? Have you sinned this week? You know. So when somebody says, hey, how many of you sinned this week? Man, all our hands, should, two of mine should go up. But we should repent. I don't know why we're so afraid to say we're sinners. We are sinners saved by grace, but we are sinners. It doesn't say that we're going to be sinless. We should sin less, but we're not going to be sinless. 
See, before we look at the chapter in more detail, let me repeat what I said when we looked at Nehemiah 8, chapter 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Some of you by nature, and I'm not pointing out anyone, I'm just saying some people by nature are more gloomy, whereas some by nature are more cheerful. Uh, I was talking to somebody today about little boys and little girls, the difference between them, the maturity levels. And little boys, just when you watch them, they just act like they don't care. I was telling somebody, I was like, you can get a group of little boys and put them in the most gloomy situation. They'll have fun. But they'll make it fun till they get bored. Sometimes little girls get put in a gloomy situation and they're trying to figure out how to, how to get out of there, how to make it better or how to clean it or whatever it is, but they're going to do something a little different. Little boys are just like, whatever. We'll worry about that when we cross that bridge. Little girls are like, well, we've got to build the bridge. So some are more gloomy, whereas some by nature are more cheerful, a little more upbeat. The gloomy types will especially need to work at joy in the Lord. But even the upbeat types need to kind of cultivate that quality as well, because it's not the joy of an upbeat personality, but the joy of the Lord is what we need. That same observation when we look at Nehemiah chapter 9 applies here. Some by nature tend to be more introspective, right? You guys I know I talk to and you think very deep and I'm like, dude, where? how did he get all that out of that? Where I'm just kind of like the guy that skims over the surface and it's like, whatever. If it hits me in the face, it hits me in the face. I'll know to turn left at that thing. Some people are more introspective and conscientious, always lamenting over their imperfection or their sins. Others can commit serious sins with hardly a twinge of a conscience. They just shrug it off like, so, big deal. Uh, We're under grace. We need to understand that. But that doesn't give us free reign to do whatever we want. I was joking with uh, little Denicia the other night. The lady Bible study had a, a party at my house, and I took my daughter and two or three other little girls, and Asa and I went. We were outnumbered. You know, I'd ask them what they wanted to do. My son's like, Dad, let's go do this. And I was like, that's boy stuff. We got to do girl stuff. But first, we got to do one guy thing that I need to do. But we'll go to Bass Pro because there's Santa Claus and stuff over there and guns for you and I to look at. And I had to buy bullets. And one of the little girls goes, what are you buying those for? I go, shoot things. She kind of looked at me like, What? So we go walking through the mall, and we're going to Claire's. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been into Claire's. It's a place where I feel like I should wash afterwards, not because it's filthy or anything. It's just like, huh, so glittery. And we walk in there, and they're all hanging. The girls are just having a great time, and I'm like, what is so fascinating about this stuff? And I'm really trying to, and my son and I are looking. There's stuffed animals, and all this, all this is going on. And I, I'm like sitting there, and I start joking around. I was like, hey, we walk out of Claire's. I was like, now what do you guys want to do? I'm like, I don't know. And I'm like, I got some bullets. We can go rob a bank. And one of the little girls just looked at me, and her eyes got huge. Like She was like, Where, where's my mom? Where is somebody with some sanity at this point? And she didn't get that I was joking. And she, her eyes were huge. I was like, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. And Elliot was like, he's always joking. He pretends he runs over people when he hits curbs and stuff and tells us, you know, that we're taking off, the cops are coming. And even after being primed for that, I bump a curb and I'm like, oh no, we just hit that. And they're like, stop, you need to stop. God's going to punish you. And I'm like, it's just a joke. Trying to get them to do a Chinese fire drill was like pulling teeth. 
I was like, man, that's fun. You stop at a stop sign, everybody gets out and runs around, and I drive away and laugh at you, and they didn't want none of that. But we're under grace. Some people are conscientious. They're a little more serious. I, gotta, I have to realize that, and I'm good with it. Some people joke around a lot. I only know a few people like that. If you're the gloomy type, you probably need to camp out in passages. Let me give you these passages if you tend to kind of be heavy sometimes. And I, I sometimes tend to be heavy. Passages like Romans chapter 8, which asks, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Because sometimes people take that real heavy. See, God's the one who justifies who's the one, and he is the one who condemns, you know? And so it asks those questions. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? There is therefore now no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're kind of that happy-go-lucky glib type who too easily shrugs off your sins like it doesn't really matter, then you probably need to camp out in passages like Nehemiah chapter 9, which confesses both personal and corporate sins. Uh, This chapter brings out three simple but important lessons, and we're going to get to one today. But the three are this, if you're a note-taker. Number one, we are prone to sin. There's a, a hymn where it says, we are prone to wander. I have a friend that got that tattooed on his arm one time, and after he came back, I was like, dude. And he goes, what? And I go, why would you do that? And he goes, do what? And I go, it says prone to wander. And he started freaking out because he couldn't really see it where it was. And, and I was like, no, I'm just, I let him on for about three days to make him think. Number two, God is so rich in his mercy Number one, we are prone to sin. Number two, God is so rich in his mercy. Then number three, ongoing repentance should mark our lives. Ongoing repentance should mark our lives. So one, we are prone to sin. Two, God is rich in mercy. And three, ongoing repentance should mark our lives. So let's dig in and check out verse one once again. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. The children of Israel, basically, after the wall was completed, after the wall was working, after the people had heard and obeyed God's word, after the Holy Spirit was doing this significant work in the lives of the people, there's now this scene of this very dramatic, humble repentance. Assembled with fasting is what it says. You might want to underline that. How many of you have ever fasted? We should do that. It's, it's pretty cool where instead of spending time cooking your meal and eating your meal and, and feeding your face, you spend time just kind of hanging out with the Lord, praying to him. I one time you know, heard of a friend, one of my friends was going to do it, and he and his uh, fiance at the time, prior to their marriage, were fasting for 40 days. And I was like, seriously? Uh, I can't even fast for 40 minutes. So I thought one day I would do this. So I picked a time I prayed, and I felt like the Lord said 25 days. I remember I really argued with him a lot. I was like, maybe you mean 25 minutes or, you know, 25 hours, but not days. And I remember the more I prayed about, the more it was really confirmed that it was days, and so I did. The first day was rugged. Oh, my gosh, I wanted to eat a couch. Kept looking at it. I was like, man, a little salt would go good with this thing. The second day was easy. The third day was easy. The fourth day, the fifth day, I had to go with nothing other than a big bottle of water up to the mountains, and then I even considered eating trees and rocks. See, fasting showed a lowly, humble state, and that's what I learned because I didn't want anyone to know I was doing this, and 
I was kind of grouchy. I was hangry, you could say. But they considered themselves so poor before God that they had no food. So they would not eat. They also wanted to say we're so troubled by our sin that food seems so unimportant. Have you ever asked or wondered, you know, when you look at these things and, and we see it in the Old Testament, why sackcloth? So we got that they're, they're fasting. They, they gather together. They hear the news of what the word says. They decide, you know what, fasting is going to be best because, you know, food is a comfort. We, we do different things. You hear comfort foods. But why sackcloth? Why can't I just fast with my jeans on? And I didn't fast with sackcloth. That'd be weird in Albuquerque. Some do. Well, probably wouldn't because there's a lot of hippies up there. But anyway, so sackcloth, this was wearing a rough fabric, kind of like burlap. Again, this was to show their complete poverty of their spirit before the Lord. They also wanted to say, we're so troubled by our sin, the normal comforts of life are unimportant. So food is unimportant. And now the normal comforts, clothing. And then they throw dust on their heads. This meant that they took little handfuls of dirt and cast them on their head. This was also to show their lowly state before God and to say, we are also troubled by our sin, that the normal comforts of life, like being clean, you know, nobody likes to be dirty, especially in the summertime around here. If you work outside, you get all sweaty and you're filthy and you just feel gross. But Those normal comforts of life, showers and bathing, you know what? When you really think about it, that's really what we are. Just big clumps of dust. That's what the Bible tells us. But all of this reflects what it does. You don't have to do these things. But all this reflects a humble attitude of heart. Humble not only towards God, but also humble towards man. Uh, They did this publicly, and others would see them in this public state. And I'm sure there were those of them who said... Man, I'm not going to humiliate myself and join in and do that. That's just crazy. There are people who say that. There are people that are like, why fast, Mark? Why why would you fast? But then also others must have said, well, you know, I'll do it just so others can see that I'm spiritual too. I'm going to join in and I'm going to do it because I don't want anyone to think I'm not spiritual. But then there were many, if not most, who came to God with a truly humble repentant heart, saying, I really want to do this because I want to honor the Lord. I want to glorify the Lord in what I'm doing, and I'm not going to brag about it, but I'm going to do it. Look at verse 2. It says, then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Those who were of the pure line of Israel came forth to confess the sin of their nation. They confessed their sins and their iniquities, of their father. So confessing sins when you think about it. It was important. They had to realize and admit that they're, they are missing God's mark. They are missing what God has planned for us. The other day, my son was talking with uh, Eric, and we were sitting at a table. I don't remember where we were, and I was joking around, and Asa looks over and, and looks right at Eric and says, I'm the only one in my family that shoots straight, meaning that, you know, he's, he, he thinks he's perfect. But that's what sin is. Sin means the word sin. So how do we sin? The English word for for sin comes from the idea to miss the mark, miss the target. In archery tournaments, if one didn't hit the target in the right place, they would say they sinned. A sin might miss the target by an inch or it might miss it by 10 feet. Yesterday I was at a a shooting range and I had to qualify and, and I was shooting and one of my bullets was just off of the bullseye. And I remember looking at that, and I'm like, man, that was close. That's pretty good. 
And, and the guy came up and goes, yeah, but you still missed. I was like, dang, thanks, dude, thanks. I'm sitting here holding a loaded gun anyway. He wasn't afraid. It's still the same. If you miss it, you miss it. Whether it's by an inch or a mile, you've missed it. It doesn't matter. Well, we've sinned. A little sin, you might say, well, you know, it was a little white lie. But the Bible says a lot about the lies, that Satan is the father of lies. So if we lie, who's our father? Kind of is what it's comparing us to. A little white lie. And so we have to be careful. Then there's the big sins. That, and you and I are the ones that put the degrees and the levels on the sin. There's murder. Oh, that's bad. The white lie, that's not so bad. But, you know, God says it's a sin. My son, whether you told a little white lie, died for you just as much as he died for the guy who committed the murder. See, it's, it talks about the iniquities of their fathers. This is really important, and, and if you get nothing out of this today other than this, I want you to know this. The iniquity of the fathers was important because they had to admit that not only they were sinners, but they came from sinful ancestors. This was real important in Israel because there was this tradition of glorifying their forefathers. It was a very big deal, and it's still a very big deal over in the Middle East. This doesn't mean there is some type of generational curse. I want you to understand that. There is not a generational curse that had to be broken. That's not what this is talking about, breaking a generational curse. God, and I'll give you the verse that backs that up. It's in Ezekiel chapter 18. God does not punish the children for their father's sin. And it's evil to say that he does. We do recognize, though, let me say this, that those raised in an environment of sin may very well repeat those same sins. Why? Not because they have to, not because God chooses for them to do that, but because their environment made it easy to make the choice to do so, right? So, for example, I grew up in a household where my dad drank beer and he partied and had friends that drank beer and partied. And so it was very easy for me to come home, and I could come in drunk if I wanted to as a 16, 17-year-old, and he wouldn't say a whole lot. He would say, man, you need to be careful. You need to be careful. And then when I got older at 18 and 19, it wasn't uncommon for me and him to pop open a beer, and I just thought it was weird. Personally, for me, I just thought it was weird that I was drinking with my dad. It was easy. He knew I'd be like, hey, Dad, I'm going to go buy a case of beer. You need anything? He'd be like, yeah, get me one, too. You got some money? No, you go ahead and pay for it. I paid for your whole life. What? See, it was easy. Thanks for tuning in today to Come Alive. Pastor Mark has been walking through the book of Nehemiah, revealing God's provision and plans for his people and for you as you continue to follow him today. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor Mark or the Come Alive ministry, head to our website, comealiveradio.com. There you'll also find an archive of our teachings, as well as a link to the church this program originates from, Calvary Chapel Katy. If you're in the Katy area, Tracy has an invitation for you. Calvary Chapel Katy is a great group of Jesus followers who are ready and waiting to welcome you into our family. We'll make sure you find a friendly smile and a listening ear. We genuinely want to get to know you. Come and see us on Sunday at 10 a.m. or find out more about our men's and women's Bible studies. 
Give us a call with any questions and to get directions. Our phone number is 281-391-5503. See you there. Thanks, Tracy. That phone number again is 281-391-5503. We want to know how we can be praying for you as well, so please let us know when you call. Prayer is powerful, and we are honored to be able to do this for our listeners. Thanks for tuning in today, and be sure to join us next time to keep learning from Nehemiah. That's right here on Come Alive.